Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our 10th episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6 Taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great continues as we talk to one of the shining stars of Australia's startup firmament. Murray Herps grew Fishburners into the thriving heart of an Australian startup ecosystem, and now he is applying these same skills to tertiary education, and in the process, he's changing the definition of what we can expect from a uni graduate. One-on-one with the legendary Murray Herps on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, supporting students to become startup founders. UTS is engaging, inspiring, and connecting students to take the leap as startup founders. Check out what they're up to at startups.uts.edu.au. And This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Campaign Monitor. When it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what meets the eye. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com launch. So if this podcast has a patron saint, that's Jason Calacanis. But if this podcast has a guardian angel, that's Mari Harps. Mari provided both the space and the funding for this podcast to take root at Fishburners back in 2014. And while he has been on this show a few times in the guise of Startup Muster, which is a very worthwhile project, we've never had the chance to sit down one-on-one and talk about the things that matter to the two of us. And one of the things that really matters to the two of us is education. And Murray has a new role at the Startup Entrepreneurship Program at UTS. Murray, welcome. Welcome. Uh, it is my fault. I apologize. <laughs> it's uh, all your It's all it's your fault. The best, uh, probably one of the best things I've ever contributed to. So it's a pleasure. Um, so... We're sitting here, and and I should be very clear with my listeners because UTS is a sponsor of this podcast and this program in particular, but this is not advertorial. This is an interview that I wanted to do before UTS came on as a sponsor. It just sort of took this long for the schedule magic to work its way through. So this is not advertorial for UTS. This is not a commercial for UTS. This is an interview with Mari Harps, and we're really talking about the new thing that we're seeing here. So earlier this year... I heard, and this was a statistic that came out of UTS, but you can tell that it's a thing, that 
students who are going through university now, they all understand that they're probably going to have to self-create their own careers, that this idea of graduating and going to work and having a series of positions and then retiring, that that is no longer the game, that in fact it's entrepreneurship that is the way forward. So what does that then mean for what a university is? Small question to start with. <laughs> Not so easy. Thanks very much. Uh, I think, uh, and I'm now regretting having a conversation before the podcast where all the good material was covered, uh, but I'll recover some of that material. Uh, there is the job that universities have to do, uh, which UTS does incredibly well, obviously, which is what people sign up for. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's the opportunity that universities have, which is outside of that, which is to enable uh, their students for the careers and lives that they're going to have after university. Well, but the thing is, is that outside? The, I mean, I think we're thinking of it as being outside the university. But the more that I look at that, I say, no, that's not outside the university. We take a look now, and I'm just going to start to pull some statistics out. So South Korea and Japan are both approaching the same demographic crisis, which Australia will get to eventually, and America will, and China will as well, where there's a massive amount of youth unemployment, and it's stubborn, and this is also endemically true in Europe. Part of this is because we've oriented ourselves to a culture where we expect the kids to get jobs rather than that the kids are going to create their jobs. And it seems to me that if that's going to get fixed, then universities are part of the solution to that rather than just churning up more people who wait for jobs. Hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, you, you can see this. I think I'm in front of an expert on the future of work, so I won't talk to it too much. But uh, the ability for someone to create their own job and jobs for other people has never been uh, easier or, or a larger opportunity than it is today. Uh, and I think it's it's incredibly naive and uh, dangerous to feed people into a system where they expect to get a job or that's the only thing that they're trying to do. Uh, in 2018, uh, I think the opportunity is help them create their own job and jobs for other people. Okay, so what does that then break down to into practice? When you say help them create their own job and jobs for other people, what does that mean in practice in the way it's working here at UTS and the way it might be working at other universities. Okay, so uh, I think there's a lot of uh, wonderful programs across a lot of wonderful universities. Uh, I'll talk about what I think is different about what we're trying to do at UTS. Uh, it's not about a particular model where we provide a lot of support to a small number of people. Uh, I think the opportunity is we have 45,000 students uh, north of that. Uh, what can we do to help them understand entrepreneurship and believe, understand that it is a normal pathway that they can engage in, that it's not as scary as it uh, might seem, that it's not as hard as it might seem, that this selling something to someone, getting someone to pay for something, doing that again and again and building up whatever you need to create a, a scalable business out of that uh, is something anyone can do. Uh, help them kind of find their ideas, find something they're passionate about, and then as soon as they find that passion, latch on to that uh, and incorporate them into a community of everyone, everyone at UTS that is uh, launching their own startup, connect them to each other uh, and connect them outwardly uh, to support and opportunities across uh, the ecosystem. Can we expect someone who's young and hasn't had any business experience 
to be able to walk out and run their own business. And I, I could, because I feel as though that's almost asking people to fly before they've even learned to flap their wings. Or do we actually need to think of this as a process of mentoring and apprenticeship? Good question. Uh, the You would know the numbers. Uh, your success rate is lower at this age. Yeah. But I strongly believe you'll come up with ideas that more experienced people won't try mm -hmm. uh, as someone that is less experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, I started my first startup when I was 16. Mm -hmm. I put a bit of software online uh, to see if people would pay for it. A surprising number of people paid for it, and that then gave me reasons to figure out what the heck I was doing. Okay. Um, and I feel like today I wouldn't try to do the same things that I tried to do back then. Okay. Uh, I think you'll also be surprised at... Uh, as I have been surprised at the quality of startups that everyone is starting here. I mean, I think the quality of ideas will be high with young people. I, I, I guess I don't worry about that. It's more that there's a lot of implicit knowledge around running a business, selling to a person. And it's, it's that implicit knowledge that takes some time to form. So how do you either accelerate their ability to form that knowledge or provide them with whatever support that they need to have that knowledge with them? Because it seems to me that if you don't have that, then you'll have people with bright ideas, but without not so much they'll have the willingness to execute, but they won't have all of the capacities that they need to execute. This is the danger and the opportunity in startups. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen thousands of startups every year. Startup Muster looks at a few thousand. Fishburne has had 507 in three years, mm -hmm. plus a few hundred that were there already, uh, plus 14 years before then of starting and running different startups. Uh, I can't pick which startup will succeed. Yeah. I can't pick which approach to launching a startup will be successful. Mm -hmm. And I've given up. <laughs> And I think anyone that's been around for long enough will give up as well and start to realize that startups are this kind of randomly generated business model, uh, which in some ways is like a franchise where you find your own area, your own team, your own funding. Mm -hmm. But instead of all the kind of systems and processes that a normal franchise gives you, you have this randomly generated business. Uh, and you need that to come up with the companies uh, that make sense. Uh, a lot of them will necessarily fail. Mm -hmm. But as long as you have a community of those startups, uh, what I've found in, in previous things that I've been involved in is the successful people hire all the people that aren't successful. Right. Uh, and the unsuccessful people have a kind of support network around them in the form of these successful companies. Right. And that then means that they can be learning from the successes, but they can also have a job, which means that they w it isn't the end of the road when they fail. Now, a lot of people who would be coming to UTS would also probably have parents who have had their own business. I mean, this is an interesting and strong determinant of an entrepreneurial drive is to have a parent or parents that are in business for themselves. Have you seen this happening as part of the program? Have you seen that there's a lot of that sort of second generation entrepreneurship or third generation? Yes. Uh, anecdotally, I've seen it. I've also seen uh, the Startup Master data shows this as well. One of the uh, questions asks, uh, what are the main reasons for starting a startup? And mm. an entrepreneurial mother and father are both represented strongly. Uh, and I think that's a problem. I think... Uh, in Australia, we don't have the culture of this being a normal thing. And I think we need to start to generate that kind of culture. I think mm -hmm. it is being generated over time. But 
if you look at the funnel of number of people in Australia, number of people that want to launch a startup, number of people that can, number of people that do, number of people that then are successful, the biggest by far drop off is at the start of people that don't see that as an opportunity or want to pursue it. Okay. If we're talking now about students here, about half of them wanting to start their own company at some point not long after they graduate, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good funnel to be starting with, right? You, you sort of have already solved that first problem, which is getting that willingness in there. Are there specific things that you want to be doing with them to, taking, to take them from that desire into something that allows them to have, uh, I guess, a plan by the time they graduate that they then get to take with them, that that is their plan for working for themselves, whether it happens immediately or over a few years? I don't want them to wait till they graduate. <laughs> All right. Um, it's been interesting. The two main streams of UTS startups are inspiring people to start and then supporting the people that are starting. I thought the inspiration part would be a much larger problem, but what I'm finding is... People are starting startups all over the place. Like every day there's one or two people coming to us saying, I'm wanting to start this idea, what do I do? Mm. UTS startups then in part becomes a commitment device that allows them to say, I want to launch this thing, commit to a regular series of check-ins with us where we check on their progress and connect them with support. And we're finding that people are coming to us with revised, improving plans because of that commitment device. Uh, and the result of all the connections that we've provided in the interim. It keeps them focused on their goals. Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of us helping them develop a plan, right. no. Uh, but in terms of us giving them continuous exposure to what they need to develop their company and their idea, yes. Okay. You have 45,000 students. If half of them start wanting to work with this program, you may have, you could easily have twenty, twenty-five thousand students connected to the entrepreneurship program at UTS. What does that look like? In other words, how does that transform what we think of as a university? That's terrifying. <laughs> we, will, we will get there. but uh, Yeah, I'm not saying you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, although conceivably <laughs> you could wake up tomorrow morning and everyone will be saying, hi, Murray, help us. No, it's, it's terrifying because uh, I feel like that's my kind of utopia. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, this six years ago, I, I remember very clearly walking into Fishbenders for the first time and mm. there was almost nothing else around Sydney in mm. terms of that kind of community of yes. people running startups. And to walk in and see, at the time, maybe 100 people that are uh, working on different things and, and uh, that marketplace and, and that game and that bit of software, it was incredible. Mm. Uh, to see how far we've come in six years uh, and the number of accelerators and incubators and, and different kinds of support for startups and just the number of startups that are being created. Mm. I think that progress is not going to stop. Yeah. Uh, and I think particularly at UTS, the idea that one day we could get to 10,000 plus people that are engaged in their own startups or uh, very strongly pursuing that as an option uh, is, is not a remote possibility at all. And I think the program is designed specifically to allow us to scale up to that kind of audience. So what you're saying is it's in the DNA of the program that it becomes a basic, essential part of what we think of as the university education. Yes, that it's not something you do 
instead of a particular elective or, or something else. It's something you do in addition to that if you have a few hours a week to dedicate, we'll happily take that and we'll support you uh, in that time. All right. That then means that when people go to uni, right, and of course, we think of people going to uni, they may come out kind of ready for a profession. They may have a medical degree. They may have a law degree. They might have a finance degree. And then they'll go and work at a bank or they'll go work in a law firm or they'll go to medical school and become a doctor. You know, we have those professional paths and those are very much how we think of how the world works. And we now are basically saying, okay, what there's this other path here. That, in fact, while you're developing your core competencies through the university and taking your core skills, you're also thinking about how to deploy those in an economic context. In other words, and we've never asked students to consider that before, right? But it was not on the table when you or I went to university. I mean, I think we thought, oh, we'll have to get a job. And we thought about it in that economic context. But we didn't think about it in the sense of the larger economic context of how do I transfer my skills into my own, my own position, my own job, my own business. True. Uh, I, I think you can also look at it as uh, imagine that law degree in addition to some experience in founding and running a startup, what that starts to create, that yeah. uh, person who's looking for their first position in a law firm and is struggling. Uh, yeah. Imagine if they just took a little gap year uh, trying to launch something uh, and either succeeded in doing it or had something wonderful on their CV to help them get that first position. Well, I mean, Emma Weston, who's the founder of AgriDigital, and, and a friend of mine, and I was interviewing her for something else a couple of weeks ago, and she admitted during the interview that she was a lawyer. And I had no idea. She was like, oh, yeah, many layers ago, right? But that was one of those foundational elements that did give her the skills to be good at a startup. And so clearly, and I, I mean, that's the thing. Everyone, not everyone in startup land, and maybe not even the majority of people in startup land have strong tech backgrounds, right? No. They come from all, exactly, they come from all over. So there's no reason that we shouldn't be thinking in, the, in, in these incredibly inclusive terms. But if we say that part of the goal of the university is to give you core competencies and the capacity to translate those core competencies into a functioning economic model, which can be entirely personal or can scale, that is actually changing the game of what people are coming to university for. Hmm. I think it's changing it in terms of who they're doing it for. Mm. So instead of doing it for their employer, they're doing it for themselves primarily. Yeah, I, well, yes, but the thing is when you're doing it for your employer, you're still doing it in the dark because you don't know who your employer is going to be. Is it going to be BHP? Is it going to be CBA? Is it going to be whoever it's going to be? And so you're still sort of like, do I have the right set of skills? I'm getting the same education. Whereas if you're building your own business or in other words, turning yourself into a self-directed economic actor, to use proper econ economist language about that, right? But if you're doing that, then what you're saying is it really doesn't matter what BHP or CBA does, although I may be selling to them, right? And so you have to know that, but that you're then giving these people agency in around their careers in a different way. And I've stopped. I don't really know who's interviewing who at this point. It's <laughs> one of these weird things in the conversation. It could be a – there's a few different ways of thinking about it, and I'm enjoying this kind of stream of conversation that uh, imagine the fearless kind of nature you would have as a 25-year-old graduating with a law degree and a startup. Yeah. 
that you can go full speed into that uh, startup knowing that if it doesn't work out, you have a fallback plan. You have a fallback plan. And I mean, when uni or when teenagers come to me and ask me as a futurist, what should I study when I go to uni? Actually, their parents ask me. I say, listen, either study finance and computer science or study law and computer science because the intersection of that is smart contracts, right? And the 21st century is going to be framed by smart contracts as legal and financial mechanisms. And so I can totally see why someone with a law degree or someone with a finance degree would also then start to think about this in a startup-y context, a way that we don't think of it now because the opportunities to be able to build businesses around these new technologies are more are more present than they than they have been. All right, we're talking to Murray Herbs. Mostly I'm talking to Murray Herbs, but we're going to take a break on This Week in Startups Australia and we'll be right back. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. And we're back talking to Murray Herbst. Now, Murray, I really want to sort of broaden the context out. We are now five years into this podcast. And these five years, when the histories are written, will have proven to be the absolutely pivotal period of the trajectory of startup culture in this country. Could you take us on a sort of a journey? What has the last five years seen happen in this country? And why has it happened? Okay. It's changed. It's changed in terms of the number of startups. It's changed in terms of the amount of support that those startups have needed and have attracted. Uh, You look at the number of accelerator programs, of funds, of uh, angel investors, of customers for startups, of procurement processes designed to support startups. 
number of people working in them, number of people training themselves to work in them, people seeing that as a viable career. I think if there's one kind of defining metric that has changed, it's the volume knob. Uh, and So just everything's gone to 11? Honestly, every year it, it surprises me the amount of uh, activity that's going on. Last year, uh, sorry, it felt like last year, the start of this year, <laughs> 2018, uh, the Startup Hub opened and uh, I just heard that Fishburners is now full. Which, and I was there the week, I think, that Annie invited me up. Mm. Be- Mostly, I think, because she wanted to see the expression on my face, which apparently was priceless because I was li- I literally just had this huge grin on my face as I'm walking around. And she told me that they had, what, 650 desks or something, and they were already two-thirds full at that point. And so we're talking a couple months later, and now they're completely full under Pandora. Yeah, the incredible Pandora, yeah. uh, incredible Annie as well. But uh, I think you look at that and go – Fishburners is, uh, in many ways, one of the funnels into the rest of the startup ecosystem. Yeah, well, certainly it's the first funnel, certainly, in terms of just its longevity. Mm. But, yeah. but to look at the kind of startups they're focused on, if they can fill that space in that time, mm. that's exhibit A, that there is incredible uh, enthusiasm and a movement towards this uh, ability to self-employ and ability to create scalable companies more easily than ever before. And, I mean, the same thing, you pop upstairs to Stone & Chalk, and now they have... I don't know, four times as much space as they had. And it's also all full. Yeah. I was in, and, and Tank Stream is full as well. Tank Stream, it's like that entire building has gone. We need gone. a new hub six months after we opened the last one. Well, the, okay, and we just had Beat More on because part of Tech Sydney is talking, is talking to the state and the city governments about building a huge new hub, which would be, in fact, quite close to UTS, right, over at Central Station, more or less. And can... Is this really just about building hubs or is it about rethinking the way we use and purpose business space in our cities? It's about hubs and I'll, I'll say why I think that. Uh, people sometimes criticise hubs. Uh, I've, I've heard in a group discussion that hubs don't do anything and I agreed strongly with that position. But what they do do is they enable certain kinds of organizations who would work better if they were closer together to right. work better. Right. Uh, so you take a bunch of incubators, accelerators, uh, investors, people who have a certain number of conversations each day, right. and by having them in the same building, you allow them to have conversations that are productive and form networks that are stronger uh, and work better as a group. Well, And what I'd heard was that startups that normally had to travel around to go talk to investors, the investors start saying, oh, no, we'll come and see you at the hub. Yeah, they're all sitting there. If you, I'm tempted to do this. Let's take a startup into level one of the startup hub in Sydney. Raise my hand and say, "Excuse me, we're looking for funding," uh, and see how many investors you can find in the room. Because I guarantee there's a couple at any time. Yeah, exactly. A couple. Okay, where's your pitch deck? Yeah, here it is. Um, and the other thing that hubs do is they serve as that lightning rod uh, that allows a bunch of people to attract what they couldn't attract individually. Okay. All right. So it's 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 almost a sort of gravitational, but it's also it's the power of network effects, right? That the more connected you are, the more likely you are to be one degree of separation away from some resource that you need. Absolutely. So does that? I mean, does that mean that we should simply have one hub? Should we be looking at a number of hubs? I mean, I don't. This is where we don't really know the rules, right? Because. Most ecosystems, like you have that huge hub, what do they call it, Station F in Paris. You don't have a single hub in San Francisco. You have lots of, of, lots of little hubs. 
we're seeing in Melbourne, there's actually a few different hubs forming. We're seeing in, in Brisbane, you have the precinct and you have fish burners basically on opposite sides of the CBD. So are we going to see sort of gigantic hubs, sort of all-in-one hubs, or are we going to see sort of lots of little connected hubs? Melbourne is fascinating because of the economics of it. It's, it's one of the rare places in Australia where you can run a co-working space like that profitably, mm -hmm. mostly profitably. So you do end up naturally having a lot of different spaces, uh, or, or you did, and now there's efforts to consolidate them because, as well. Because commercial real estate is less expensive, less insanely expensive than it is in here in Sydney. Exactly, and people are willing or expecting to pay more for their space down there as well oh, okay. in terms of co-working, uh, or, or it was my experience when I was at Fishburners. Uh, in terms of... Uh, where it makes sense to have a hub uh, in transport analyses that we've done before uh, we found people traveled further significantly further to get to a place like Fishburners than to a general co-working space based on their home addresses right uh, i think if you ask someone who lived in Parramatta would you like a, a smaller hub in Parramatta or would you be willing to travel for an hour to a hub with 10,000 people in it every day it's a bit of a yeah you know yeah no 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 I can totally see what you mean it's if there are things that you're specifically doing in Parramatta then there might be a reason to be in Parramatta but if it's more general kinds of capacities that you're looking for then you might be better served in the hub with ten thousand people you're absolutely right for this kind of work mm -hmm. where the network becomes one of the most valuable things you could have as a startup founder it starts to make a lot of sense and I will say. I love Parramatta. I oh, live yeah, in yeah. Kellyville. Uh, yeah. I'm a Westie, born yeah. and raised. And uh, but I just feel like for a hub to exist, you need to have it as uh, something that's compelling from a transport proposition. Mm -hmm. So uh, beyond the limit of where you're willing to travel, uh, that starts to be where you start to think about another hub that's closer to. Uh, where you can actually travel to. So we might be thinking about having a hub then out in Liverpool or a hub in uh, Penrith or a hub in Hornsby, sort of at the at the edges and then hubs in the centre, sort of that sort of mix. Absolutely. Right. Bathurst, et cetera, right. uh, make a lot of sense, I think. And in fact, we're starting to see a lot of uh, sort of startup incubator accelerator activities happen in regional towns, both because the state government wants to see it happen. I think this is particularly the case in Queensland as well, but also because there is a demand, maybe not the same level of demand, but there's clearly a demand for people in regional Australia to become masters of their own businesses in that way. Hmm. Okay, so we now have the sort of the acceleration into hubs, but I guess before all of that, we started to see there was a real, there was a tipping point. And the tipping point was around four, four and a half years ago. Can we identify in retrospect any of the elements of that tipping point? Was it just that things were at the right place at the right time? That seems a little vague. Is there anything that we can see there and any wisdom that we can recover from that? Great question. I'm struggling. I'd, I'd well, we were both down in it. That's the thing. And what are we not seeing about what was true about that moment in time? Maybe it's just one of those things where having it becomes the reason for having more of it. That as soon as you have places like Fishburners starting to exist, right. people look at that and go, that's great. We're going to uh, start which, one of which those. Which was definitely the case, though, right? I mean, you were playing host to everyone coming through and having a look for a while. 689 events in the year that I've mm. finished. 
uh, <laughs> over a thousand people a week coming through the space for all the events. The number of people that we got to uh, hopefully inspire and, and uh, seed off to start their own startups and spaces around Australia. Uh, I think that starts to make some kind of sense for why there's a whole lot more of that now. So in some sense, it's the virtuous cycle of simply showing people that it's possible because people then just, as long as they can believe that it's possible, that's really what all it takes for them to be able to maybe go, yes, we need this for ourselves or I want to be involved. Absolutely. Like, imagine you would not be the first person to create a podcast uh, of this quality, you wouldn't sit at a desk and say, "I'm going to invent this thing called podcasts." No, I think Adam Curry claims that, but <laughs> but yes, but you are uh, much uh, more willing to do that kind of thing as soon as you see it's a viable path, and yeah. and uh, people like me are doing this wonderful kind of work. Yeah. Okay, so if we then, if seeing is really the the basic thing, that bringing people in and experiencing that. Then let's tie this all the way back. Does that then mean that part of what students need to be exposed to at UTS, but in general as part of university education, is a more in-depth experience of what it means, like the visible experience of what it means to be inside your own business, to be thinking like a business person, to be thinking like an ac- uh, someone who is self-generating their own economic success? Yes, and I think... To do that, you can't sit in a classroom. Uh, I think it's on- the opposite of sitting at a classroom. It is a complete opposite. Uh, entrepreneurship is about finding a reason to do something, doing it, and learning by doing. And I think any effort to try and teach entrepreneurship is a little bit doomed. Uh, instead of trying to encourage entrepreneurship and allow an environment where people can learn. Okay, last question. We're going to take this forward five years. All right, we've been, we're in it five years from Fishburners starting in, what, 2013? Yeah. So five years in. Okay, so it's five years. We're 2023. And the program here is going. What does UTS look like from the student's point of view? You know, when they rock up in February, end of February, whenever they, they start classes around here, and they've just graduated from high school, and they're full of all the ideas and visions that you have because you're going to uni and you're growing up. What are they thinking about what awaits them at the uni? Okay, I've, I've heard multiple people, uh, and it's not a great comparison, but I've heard them compare UTS to Stanford in terms of the reputation of the students, the adjacency to a very large startup ecosystem, and the willingness and desire to engage externally rather than remain in a bubble. Uh, in terms of what it looks like then, I think that reputation is something I want to maximise. Mm-hmm. The, the ideal reputation of UTS is not of UTS, but is of the people inside UTS. And for UTS students to be people that are launching companies, launching successful companies, and people are going to UTS because that's the kind of people they aspire to be. Uh, I don't think we're that far away from achieving it. Uh, I think there's a lot of wonderful options in universities across Australia. Mm. It's obviously a wonderful place for universities. But if you look for someone that's head and shoulders above in terms of I'm entrepreneurial, I want to surround myself with entrepreneurial people and an environment where that's encouraged and uh, my opportunities are maximised. I don't think there's a clear 
kind of option at the moment, and I want UGS to be that option. Stanford is a very big set of shoes to fill. I'm not saying it won't happen, uh, it, but it is interesting given the overweighted nature of Stanford's influence on the startup community and certainly in America, right? Only probably MIT and I don't even know if there's another university that sort of comes close, possibly Harvard because of Microsoft and Facebook coming out of Harvard. No, absolutely. And I, I, as I said, I don't like the comparison, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I will say Stanford was not always seen in that way. No, 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 no. Stanford wasn't seen in that way when I got to California in the early 90s, right? I mean, it was, it was seen as a great university and prestigious, but it wasn't seen as this hotbed of startup culture. And I think Google and Google coming out of it and Yahoo coming out of it are the turning points there. And I think what UTS needs is simply one or two companies. It's not that hard. Murray, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mike. University of Technology Sydney recognizes the incredible potential of the next generation of Australian startup founders. UTS believes entrepreneurship is about doing, inspiring students to take that first step on their founder journey, then encouraging them to keep going. UTS Startups supports student founders from ideation stage to launch with one-on-one mentorship and guidance to support them from across the entire startup ecosystem. This new UTS startup model focuses on connecting each founder with what they need, when they need it, as well as forging connections between members of the UTS startups community. Go see their vibrant collaboration space on Harris Street in Ultimo or visit startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist the listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Bay McLaughlin of the Brink Accelerator in Hong Kong, who's running the Are You China Ready Challenge. Take it away, Bay. What's going on, everyone? It's Bay McLaughlin, a.k.a. Beta Bay, and I'm here to announce the Are You China Ready Global Startup Contest. Thank you for the Startup Australia group for getting the word out, and hopefully we're going to see a lot of great applications coming in from all across Australia for the semifinals in Sydney sometime this October. So the contest is really simple. Anyone that actually has a prototype of their content, their concept, their hardware, their service, their algorithm, whatever it might be that you believe is meant to be in the China market, that you have what it takes to enter the world's largest market, any startup can apply. Brink.io slash contest. 
any team can apply. It'll take under five minutes. We'll be doing all of the reviews after the deadline, September 15th, so a couple more weeks to get in your applications. We'll be reviewing and doing online phone interviews before we host the semifinals in nine cities around the world, Sydney, Australia being one. So if you're able to make it to Sydney and you're interested, go ahead and apply brink.io slash contest. All teams that apply are going to be eligible to win three per city, three different startups per all of the cities, Sydney included, will be winning one week free round trip ticks to China. It'll be in early December for the Guangzhou International Innovation Festival. You'll be treated to a week of hands-on training, access to the top VCs in China, the largest mega giant tech companies like NetEase, JD.com, Alibaba, and many more. And then you'll all pitch on stage for a possible $25,000 US in completely no strings attached, equity free cash prize. 10 teams out of the 27 semifinalists from around the world that'll be fly- flown out to Guangzhou, China in December will also be given up to a $15,000 US grant by the Guangzhou government to allow them to cover their legal expenses and set up fees if they really truly want to enter the Chinese market. Last year, we had three companies out of the nine that actually applied, set up, and are now selling into China. So we've tripled it this year to 27 companies and we'll be hoping up to 10 of you will be receiving that grant setting up and then sharing your stories of what you've learned successes and lessons learned next year at the contest again so if you have any questions brink.io slash contest that's brink with a c apply before september 15th we can't wait to see your applications and hopefully we'll have a grand prize winner from sydney australia soon thanks as always startup australia if you have any questions you can always hit me up at beta bay b-e-t-a-b-a-y anywhere online and we have Happy to answer your questions. We hope to see your application soon. Peace. When it comes to email marketing, there's so much more that goes into creating smart and effective campaigns than what meets the eye. That's why Campaign Monitor created an easy-to-use email marketing platform, complete with simple drag-and-drop email editor and award-winning 24-7 customer service. Campaign Monitor gives you everything you need to run beautifully designed, professional email marketing campaigns to grow your business. With their gallery of beautiful, professionally designed email templates, all of which look amazing on every device, you're bound to find something that will make your brand pop. And since Campaign Monitor uses detailed lists and smart segments, your messages instantly drive more engagement. It's no wonder that it's used by more than 250,000 businesses worldwide. And it's rated highest in customer satisfaction among major email marketing software vendors. To start building smart and beautiful email newsletters today, try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com launch. Listeners who sign up and become a customer will receive a free t-shirt. Again, that's campaignmonitor.com slash launch.
clear what Murray Herbst and the crew over at UTS are trying to do will change the definition of a university education. We've had an industrial mode of education for about the last 70 years, the post-war period, in which people entered the university to get the set of credentials that they would need to have a managerial class job. That was how the system worked. That system doesn't work anymore. And so what we need to do is adjust all of our institutions to fit the world of work that these students are entering. It's a world of self-created work. It's a world of startups. It's a world of opportunity and flexibility. And it's a world that can be open to everyone if we give them the tools. And that's clearly what Murray is trying to do at UTS. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Campaign Monitor. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Murray Herps and Bay McLaughlin for joining us on this episode. Now, we've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back in a few weeks with more great stories from the heart of Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.